Hello, and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we have another full chapter, and it's a bit of a lengthier one, so I'll just say there's a content warning in this episode for lynching, specifically a non-graphic description of someone being burned alive. By that I mean it doesn't go into detail, but it is talked about as an event. With that, let's get started on our reading. Chapter 7. Woman's Suffrage at the Turn of the Century. The Rising Influence of Racism. Quote, One morning, Susan B. Anthony had engagements in the city, which would prevent her from using the stenographer whom she had engaged. She remarked at the breakfast table that I could use the stenographer to help me with my correspondence, since she had to be away all morning, and that she would tell her when she went upstairs to come in and let me dictate some letters to her. When I went upstairs to my room, I waited for her to come in. When she did not do so, I concluded she didn't find it convenient, and went on writing my letters in longhand. When Miss Anthony returned, she came to my room and she found me busily engaged. You didn't care to use my secretary, I suppose? I told her to come to your room when you came upstairs. Didn't she come? I said no. She said no more, but turned and went into her office. Well, she's gone. And I said, who? She said, the stenographer. I said, gone where? Why, she said, I went into the office and said to her, you didn't tell Miss Wells what I said about writing some letters for her? The girl said, no, I didn't. Well, why not? Then the girl said, it's all right for you, Miss Anthony, to treat Negroes as equals, but I refuse to take dictation from a colored woman. Indeed, said Miss Anthony. Then, she said, you needn't take any more dictation from me. Miss Wells is my guest and any insult to her is an insult to me. So if that is the way you want to feel about it, you needn't stay any longer. End quote. Footnote 1. This interchange between Susan B. Anthony and Ida B. Wells, who later founded the first black women's suffrage club, occurred during those, quote, precious days in which I, Wells, sat at the feet of this pioneer and veteran in the work of women's suffrage, end quote, footnote two. Wells' admiration for Anthony's individual stance against racism was undeniable, and her support for the suffragists' contributions to the women's rights campaign was profound but she unhesitatingly criticized her white sister for failing to make her personal fight against racism a public issue of the suffrage movement. Susan B. Anthony was never lacking in praises for Frederick Douglass, consistently reminding people that he was the first man to publicly advocate the enfranchisement of women. She considered him a lifetime honorary member of her suffrage organization. Yet, as Anthony explained to Wells, she pushed Douglass aside, for the sake of recruiting white Southern women into the movement for woman suffrage. Quote, In our conventions, he was the honored guest who sat on our platform and spoke at our gatherings. But when the Suffrage Association went to Atlanta, Georgia, knowing the feeling of the South with regard to Negro participation on equality with whites, I myself asked Mr. Douglas not to come. I did not want to subject him to humiliation, and I did not want anything to get in the way of bringing the southern white women into our suffrage association. End quote. Footnote 3. Davis has emphasized the last line of that quote. In this particular conversation with Ida B. Wells, Anthony went on to explain that she had also refused to support the efforts of several black women who wanted to form a branch of the suffrage association. 
she did not want to awaken the anti-black hostility of her white southern members, who might withdraw from the organization if black women were admitted. Quote, And you think I was wrong in so doing? She asked. I answered uncompromisingly, yes, for I felt that although she may have made gains for suffrage, she had also confirmed white women in their attitude of segregation. End quote. Footnote 4. This conversation between Ida B. Wells and Susan B. Anthony took place in 1894. Anthony's self-avowed capitulation to racism, on the ground of expediency, footnote 5, characterized her public stance on this issue until she resigned in 1900 from the presidency of the National American Woman Suffrage Association. When Wells admonished Anthony for legitimizing the Southern white women's commitment to segregation, the underlying question was far more consequential than Anthony's individual attitude. Racism was objectively on the rise during this period, and the rights and lives of black people were at stake. By 1894, the disfranchisement of black people in the South, the legal system of segregation, and the reign of lynch law were already well established. More than at any other time since the Civil War, this was an era demanding consistent and principled protests against racism. The increasingly influential expediency argument proposed by Anthony and her colleagues was a feeble justification for the suffragists' indifference to the pressing requirements of the times. In 1888, Mississippi enacted a series of statutes legalizing racial segregation, and by 1890 that state had ratified a new constitution which robbed black people of the vote. Footnote 6. Following Mississippi's example, other southern states framed new constitutions which guaranteed the disfranchisement of black men. South Carolina's constitution was adopted in 1898, followed by North Carolina and Alabama in 1901, and Virginia, Georgia, and Oklahoma in 1902, 1908, and 1918, respectively. Footnote 7. Ida B. Wells' uncompromising criticism of Susan B. Anthony's public indifference toward racism was certainly justified by the prevailing social conditions, but something far deeper than historical evidence was involved. Just two years before the two women's debate on suffrage and racism, Wells had suffered a traumatic first-hand encounter with racist mob violence. The three victims of Memphis' first lynching since the riots of 1866 were personal friends of hers. The horrible incident itself inspired Wells to investigate and expose the accelerating pattern of mob murders throughout the southern states. Traveling in England in 1893, seeking support for her crusade against lynching, she vigorously decried the silence with which hundreds and thousands of mob murders had been received. Quote, in the past ten years, over a thousand black men and women and children have met this violent death at the hands of a white mob, and the rest of America has remained silent. The pulpit and press of our country remained silent on these continued outrages, and the voice of my race thus tortured and outraged is stifled or ignored wherever it is lifted in America in a demand for justice. End quote. Footnote 8. Given the uncamouflaged violence visited upon black people during the 1890s, how could white suffragists argue in good faith that, for the sake of expediency, they should stoop to conquer on this color question? Footnote 9. The ostensibly neutral stance assumed by the leadership of the NAWSA with respect to the color question 
actually encouraged the proliferation of undisguised racist ideas within the ranks of the suffrage campaign. At the association's 1895 convention, appropriately held in Atlanta, Georgia, one of the most prominent figures in the campaign for the vote, quote, urged the South to adopt woman suffrage as one solution to the Negro problem. End quote. Footnote 10. This Negro problem could be simply solved, so Henry Blackwell proclaimed, by attaching a literacy qualification to the right to vote. Quote, In the development of our complex political society, we have today two great bodies of illiterate citizens. In the North, people of foreign birth. In the South, people of the African race and a considerable portion of the white population. Against foreigners and Negroes as such, we would not discriminate. But in every state save one, there are more educated white women than all the illiterate voters, white and black, native and foreign. End quote. Footnote 11. Ironically, this argument, designed to persuade white southerners that woman suffrage held great advantages for white supremacy, was initially proposed by Henry Blackwell when he announced his support for the 14th and 15th Amendments. Already in 1867, he had addressed an appeal to the legislatures of the southern states, urging them to take note of the fact that female enfranchisement could potentially eliminate the black population's impending political power. Quote, Consider the result from the southern standpoint. Your four million of southern white women will counterbalance your four million of negro men and women, and thus the political supremacy of your white race will remain unchanged. End quote. Footnote 12. This renowned abolitionist assured the Southern politicians at that time that woman suffrage could reconcile the North and the South. Quote, Capital and population would flow, like the Mississippi, toward the Gulf. And, as for black people, they, quote, would gravitate, by the law of nature, toward the tropics. End quote. Footnote 13. Quote, The very element which has destroyed slavery would side with the victorious South, and... Out of the nettle danger, you would pluck the flower safety. End quote. Footnote 14. Blackwell and his wife, Lucy Stone, assisted Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony during their 1867 Kansas campaign. That Stanton and Anthony welcomed at this time the support of a notorious Democrat, whose program was Woman First, the Negro Last, was an indication that they implicitly assented to Blackwell's racist logic. Moreover, they uncritically described, in their History of Woman Suffrage, the Kansas politicians' fear of black suffrage. Quote, The men of Kansas in their speeches would say, If Negro suffrage passes, we will be flooded with ignorant, impoverished blacks from every state of the Union. If woman suffrage passes, we invite to our borders people of character and position, of wealth and education. Who can hesitate to decide when the question lies between educated women and ignorant Negroes? End quote. Footnote 15. However racist these early postures of the women's movement may seem, it was not until the last decade of the 19th century that the woman suffrage campaign began to definitively accept the fatal embrace of white supremacy. The two factions, Stanton, Anthony, and Blackwell Stone, which had split on the issue of the 14th and 15th Amendments, were reunited in 1890. In 1892, Elizabeth Cady Stanton had grown disillusioned about the ballot's potential power to liberate women and ceded the presidency of the National American Woman Suffrage Association to her colleague, Susan B. Anthony. 
During the second year of Anthony's term, the NAWSA passed a resolution which was a variation of Blackwell's racist and class-biased argument of more than a century earlier. Quote, Resolved. That, without expressing any opinion on the proper qualifications for voting, we call attention to the significant facts that in every state there are more women who can read and write than the whole number of illiterate male voters, more white women who can read and write than all Negro voters, more American women who can read and write than all foreign voters, so that the enfranchisement of such women would settle the vexed question of rule by illiteracy, whether by homegrown or foreign-born production. End quote. Footnote 16. This resolution cavalierly dismissed the rights of black and immigrant women along with the rights of their male relations. Moreover, it pointed to a fundamental betrayal of democracy that could no longer be justified by the old expediency argument. Implied in the logic of this resolution was an attack on the working class as a whole, and a willingness, whether conscious or not, to make common cause with the new monopoly capitalists whose indiscriminate search for profits knew no human bounds. In passing the 1893 resolution, the suffragists may as well have announced that if they, as white women of the middle classes and bourgeoisie, were given the power of the vote, they would rapidly subdue the three main elements of the US working class, black people, immigrants, and the uneducated native white workers. It was these three groups of people whose labor was exploited and whose lives were sacrificed by the Morgans, Rockefellers, Mellons, Vanderbilts, by the new class of monopoly capitalists who were ruthlessly establishing their industrial empires. They controlled the immigrant workers in the north as well as the former slaves and poor white laborers who were operating the new railroad, mining, and steel industries in the south. Terror and violence compelled black workers in the South to accept slave-like wages and working conditions that were frequently worse than slavery. This was the logic behind the rising waves of lynchings and the pattern of legal disfranchisement in the South. In 1893, the year of that fatal NAWSA resolution, the Supreme Court reversed the Civil Rights Act of 1875. With this decision, Jim Crow and lynch law, a new mode of racist enslavement, received judicial sanction. Indeed, three years later, the Plessy v. Ferguson decision announced the separate but equal doctrine, which consolidated the South's new system of racial segregation. The last decade of the 19th century was a critical moment in the development of modern racism. Its major institutional supports, as well as its attendant ideological justifications, This was also the period of imperialist expansion into the Philippines, Hawaii, Cuba, and Puerto Rico. The same forces that sought to subjugate the peoples of these countries were responsible for the worsening plight of black people and the entire US working class. Racism nourished these imperialist ventures and was likewise conditioned by imperialism's strategies and apologetics. On November 12, 1898, the New York Herald ran stories about the U.S. presence in Cuba, the race riot in Phoenix, South Carolina, and the massacre of black people in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Wilmington massacre was the most murderous of an entire series of organized mob attacks on black people during that period. According to a black minister at that time, Wilmington was Cuba's kindergarten of ethics and good government. Footnote 17 as it was also the proof of the profound hypocrisy of U.S. foreign policy in the Philippines. 
1899, the suffragists were quick to furnish evidence of their consistent loyalty to the avaricious monopoly capitalists. As the dictates of racism and chauvinism had shaped the NAWSA's policy toward the domestic working class, they accepted without question the new feats of US imperialism. At their convention that year, Anna Garland Spencer delivered an address entitled Duty to the Women of Our New Possessions. Footnote 18. Our New Possessions? During the discussion, Susan B. Anthony did not attempt to conceal her anger. But as it turned out, she was not angry about the seizures themselves. She had been, quote, overflowing with wrath ever since the proposal was made to engraft our half-barbaric form of government on Hawaii and our other new possessions, end quote, footnote 19. Anthony consequently advanced the demand with all the force of her wrath, quote, that the ballot be given to the women of our new possessions upon the same terms as to the men, end quote, footnote 20. As if women in Hawaii and Puerto Rico should demand the right to be victimized by U.S. imperialism on an equal basis with their men. During this 1899 convention of the NAWSA, a revealing contradiction emerged. While the suffragists invoked their duty to the women of our possessions, a black woman's appeal for a resolution against Jim Crow went entirely unheeded. The black suffragist, Lottie Wilson Jackson, was admitted to the convention because the host state was Michigan, one of the few chapters welcoming black women into the suffrage association. During her train trip to the convention, Lottie Jackson had suffered the indignities of the railroad's segregationist policies. Her resolution was very simple, quote, that colored women ought not to be compelled to ride in smoking cars, and that suitable accommodations should be provided for them, end quote, footnote 21. As the convention's presiding officer, Susan B. Anthony brought the discussion on the black woman's resolution to a close. Her comments assured the overwhelming defeat of the resolution. Quote, We women are a helpless, disfranchised class. Our hands are tied. While we are in this condition, it is not for us to go passing resolutions against railroad corporations or anybody else. End quote. Footnote 22. The meaning of this incident was far deeper than the issue of whether or not to send an official letter protesting a railroad company's racist policies. In refusing to defend their black sister, the NAWSA symbolically abandoned the entire black people at the moment of their most intense suffering since emancipation. This gesture definitively established the suffrage association as a potentially reactionary political force, which would cater to the demands of white supremacy. The NAWSA's evasion of the issue of racism posed by Lottie Jackson's resolution would indeed encourage the expression of anti-black prejudices within the organization. Objectively, an open invitation had been extended to Southern women who were not about to relinquish their commitment to white supremacy. At best, this non-committal posture on the struggle for black equality constituted an acquiescence to racism. And at worst, it was a deliberate incentive on the part of an influential mass organization for the violence and devastation spawned by the white supremacist forces of the times. Susan B. Anthony should not, of course, be held personally responsible for the suffrage movement's racist errors, but she was the movement's most outstanding leader at the turn of the century, and her presumably neutral public posture toward the fight for black equality 
did indeed bolster the influence of racism within the NAWSA. Had Anthony seriously reflected on the findings of her friend Ida B. Wells, she might have realised that a non-committal stand on racism implied that lynchings and mass murders by the thousands could be considered a neutral issue. By 1899, Wells had completed an enormous amount of research on lynchings and had published her tragically astounding results. Over the previous 10 years, between 1 and 200 officially recorded lynchings had occurred on an annual basis. Footnote 23. In 1898, Wells created something of a public stir by directly demanding that President McKinley offer federal intervention in the lynching case of a South Carolina postmaster. Footnote 24. In 1899, when Susan B. Anthony urged the defeat of the anti-Jim Crow resolution, black people massively denounced President McKinley's encouragement of white supremacy. The Massachusetts branch of the Colored National League charged that McKinley had been apologetically silent during the reign of terror in Phoenix, South Carolina, and that he failed to intervene when black people were massacred in Wilmington, North Carolina. During his trip south, they told McKinley, quote, You preached patience, industry, moderation to your long-serving black fellow citizens, and patriotism, jingoism, and imperialism to your white ones. End quote. Footnote 25. While McKinley was in Georgia, a mob broke into a prison, seized five black men, and, quote, almost in your hearing, before your eyes, they were atrociously murdered. Did you speak? Did you open your lips to express horror of the awful crime, which outbarbarized barbarism, and stained through and through with indelible infamy before the world your country's justice, honor, and humanity. End quote. Footnote 26. And not a presidential word was uttered about one of the period's most notorious lynchings, the burning that year of Sam Hose in Georgia. Quote, he was taken one quiet Sunday morning from his captors and burned to death with indescribable and hellish cruelty in the presence of cheering thousands of the so-called best people of Georgia. Men, women, and children, who had gone forth on a Christian Sabbath to the burning of a human being as to a country festival and holiday of innocent enjoyment and amusement. End quote. Footnote 27. Countless historical documents confirm the atmosphere of racist aggression as well as the powerful changes emanating from black people during the year 1899. An especially symbolic document is a call issued by the National Afro-American Council urging black people to observe June 2nd as a day of fasting and prayer. Published in the New York Tribune, this proclamation denounced the unjustified and indiscriminate arrests which leave men and women easy prey for mobs of ignorant, vicious, whiskey-besotted men who torture, hang, shoot, butcher, dismember, and burn. Footnote 28 it was thus not even a question of reading the handwriting on the wall. The reign of terror had already descended upon black people. How could Susan B. Anthony claim to believe in human rights and political equality, and at the same time counsel the members of her organization to remain silent on the issue of racism? Bourgeois ideology, and particularly its racist ingredients, must really possess the power of dissolving real images of terror into obscurity and insignificance, 
and the fading horrible cries of human suffering beings into barely audible murmurings, and then silence. When the new century rolled around, a serious ideological marriage had linked racism and sexism in a new way. White supremacy and male supremacy, which had always had an easy courtship, openly embraced and consolidated the affair. During the first years of the 20th century, the influence of racist ideas was stronger than ever. The intellectual climate, even in progressive circles, seemed to be fatally infected with irrational notions about the superiority of the Anglo-Saxon race. This escalated promotion of racist propaganda was accompanied by a similarly accelerated promotion of ideas implying female inferiority. If people of color, at home and abroad, were portrayed as incompetent barbarians, women, white women that is, were more rigorously depicted as mother figures whose fundamental raison d'etre was the nurturing of the male of the species. White women were learning that as mothers, they bore a very special responsibility in the struggle to safeguard white supremacy. After all, they were the mothers of the race. Although the term race allegedly referred to the human race, in practice, especially as the eugenics movement grew in popularity, little distinction was made between the race and the Anglo-Saxon race. As racism developed more durable roots within white women's organizations, so too did the sexist cult of motherhood creep into the very movement whose announced aim was the elimination of male supremacy. The coupling of sexism and racism was mutually strengthening. Having opened its doors to the prevailing racist ideology more widely than ever before, the suffrage movement had opted for an obstacle course which placed its own goal of women's suffrage in continuous jeopardy. The 1901 convention of the NAWSA was the first in many years at which Susan B. Anthony was not the presiding officer. Having retired the previous year, she was nonetheless in attendance and was introduced by the new president, Carrie Chapman Catt, to deliver the welcoming message. Anthony's remarks reflected the influence of the rejuvenated eugenics campaign. While women, she argued, had been corrupted in the past by man's appetites and passions, footnote 29, it was time for them to fulfill their purpose of becoming saviors of the race, footnote 30. It would be through women's, quote, intelligent emancipation that the race shall be purified. It is through woman that the race is to be redeemed. For this reason, I ask for her immediate and unconditional emancipation from all political, industrial, and religious subjection. End quote. Footnote 31. The main address, delivered by Carrie Chapman Catt, pointed to three great obstacles to women's suffrage. Militarism, prostitution, and, quote, the inertia in the growth of democracy, which has come as a reaction following the aggressive movements that with possibly ill-advised haste enfranchised the foreigner, the Negro, and the Indian. Perilous conditions seeming to follow from the introduction into the Bali politic, vast numbers of irresponsible citizens have made the nation timid. End quote. Footnote 32. By 1903, the NAWSA witnessed such an outburst of racist argumentation that it appeared that the upholders of white supremacy were determined to seize control over the organization. Significantly, the 1903 convention was held in the southern city of New Orleans. 
It was hardly a coincidence that the racist arguments heard by the delegates were complemented by numerous defenses of the motherhood cult. If Edward Merrick, son of the Louisiana Supreme Court Chief Justice, spoke about, quote, the crime of enfranchising a horde of ignorant Negro men, end quote, footnote 33, Mary Chase, a delegate from New Hampshire, claimed that women should be enfranchised, quote, as the natural guardians and protectors of the home, end quote, footnote 34. At the 1903 convention, it was Belle Kearney from Mississippi, whose remarks most blatantly confirmed the dangerous alliance between racism and sexism, bluntly referring to the southern black population as the, quote, four and a half million ex-slaves, illiterate and semi-barbarous, end quote, footnote 35. She historically evoked their enfranchisement as a death weight under which the South had struggled for nearly 40 years, bravely and magnanimously. Footnote 36. However inadequate Booker T. Washington's theory of vocational education for black people may have been in reality, Kearney insisted that Tuskegee and similar schools were, quote, only fitting the Negro for power, and when the black man becomes unnecessary to a community by reason of his skill and acquired wealth, end quote, footnote 37, something of a race war will result. Quote, the poor white man, embittered by his poverty and humiliated by his inferiority, finds no place for himself and his children. Then will come the grapple between the races. End quote, footnote 38. Of course, no such struggle between white workers and black workers was inevitable. The apologists of the new monopoly capitalist class were, however, determined to provoke these racist divisions. Around the same time that Kearney spoke before the New Orleans Convention, an identical alarm was issued to the U.S. Senate. On February 24, 1903, Senator Ben Tillman from South Carolina warned that the colleges and schools for black people in the South would lead inexorably to racial conflict. Designed to equip these people, who in his eyes were the nearest to the missing link with the monkey, to compete with their white neighbors, these schools would, quote, create an antagonism between the poorer classes of our citizens and these people upon whose level they are in the labor market. End quote, footnote 39. Moreover, quote, there has been no contribution to elevate the white people in the South, to aid and assist the Anglo-Saxon Americans, the men who are descended from the people who fought with Marion and Dumpter. They are allowed to struggle in poverty and in ignorance, and to do everything they can to get along, and they see northern people pouring in thousands and thousands to help build up an African domination. End quote. Footnote 40. Contrary to Kearney and Tillman's logic, racial conflict did not emerge spontaneously, but rather was consciously planned by the representatives of the economically ascendant class. They needed to impede working class unity so as to facilitate their own exploitative designs. The forthcoming race riots, Atlanta, Brownsville, Texas, Springfield, Ohio, like the 1898 massacres in Wilmington and Phoenix, South Carolina, were orchestrated precisely in order to heighten the tensions and antagonism within the multiracial working class. Belle Kearney informed her sisters at the New Orleans Convention that she had discovered a sure way of containing the racial antagonisms within manageable limits. She claimed she knew exactly how to prevent the otherwise inevitable race war. Quote, To avoid this unspeakable culmination, the enfranchisement of women will have to be affected. 
and an educational and property qualification for the ballot be made to apply. The enfranchisement of women would ensure immediate and durable white supremacy, honestly attained, for, upon unquestionable authority, it is stated that, in, in every southern state but one, there are more educated women than all the illiterate voters, white and black, native and foreign, combined. End quote, footnote 41. The utterly horrifying tone of Kearney's address should not conceal the fact that she invoked theories which had become quite familiar within the women's suffrage movement. The statistical argument and the call for a literacy requirement had been heard many times before by delegates to previous NAWSA conventions. In proposing a property qualification for the vote, Kearney reflected the anti-working class ideas which had unfortunately gained a stronghold in the suffrage movement. There was an ironical twist to the words Bell Kearney delivered to the convened membership of the National American Woman Suffrage Association. For years and years, leading suffragists had justified the association's indifference to the cause of racial equality by invoking the catch-all argument of expediency. Now, woman suffrage was represented as the most expedient means to deliver racial supremacy. The NAWSA had unwittingly caught itself in its own trap in the trap of expediency, which was supposed to catch the vote. Once the pattern of capitulation to racism had taken hold, and especially at that historical juncture when the new and ruthless monopolist expansion required more intense forms of racism, it was inevitable that the suffragists would eventually be hurt by its backfire. The delegate from Mississippi confidently declared, quote, Someday, the North will be compelled to look to the South for redemption, on account of the purity of its Anglo-Saxon blood, the simplicity of its social and economic structure, and the maintenance of the sanctity of its faith, which has been kept inviolate. End quote. Footnote 42. Not an ounce of sisterly solidarity could be detected here, and there was not a word about the defeat of male supremacy or about women eventually coming into their own. It was not women's rights or women's political equality, but rather the reigning racial superiority of white people, which had to be preserved at all cost. Quote, just as surely as the North will be forced to turn to the South for the nation's salvation, just so surely will the South be compelled to look to its Anglo-Saxon women as the medium through which to retain the supremacy of the white race over the African. End quote, footnote 43. Quote, thank God the black man was freed. She exclaimed with deliberately racist arrogance. I wish for him all possible happiness and all possible progress, but not in encroachments upon the holy of holies of the Anglo-Saxon race. End quote. Footnote 44. And that concludes our reading for this week. I have some quick thoughts about this chapter. This is the Breaking Bad I've been expecting for a while about this temporary alliance, because effectively at the end of the day... The thing I was expecting was the point, a point at which the white women voters would be more concerned with their specific struggle and everything feeding into it, more than actually uplifting other people. Especially because, I don't remember who it was who said this, but some very good advice I once heard was that if you don't have an anti-racist strategy, then you just have a racist one. If you are not actively going to take a stand against racism, then you are giving space to the people who will take an active stand for racism, or the people who inadvertently have racist ideas and are unaware of it, and you are not actively 
stamping that out. And that happened here, because when you not only say, well, we can't actively advocate for black people, but you even in fact say, well, we really can't do it because we need to let the racists in, because we need their support. That sounds the death bell for your cause, because you're letting the racists in, and they're not going to be progressive ultimately. They're going to maybe be in favor of a certain thing or two, but this is just like the modern turf movement. If you're letting in the reactionaries, they just want to turn back the clock on things. They're not there to progress anything forward. When TERFs lend their support to women's causes, they're not lending their support to ultimately uplift women, because they're lending their support for a very specific vision of what womanhood is and what women should be, and they're adamant that they're going to do anything they can to claw for support for that. And the women's suffragette movement just suffered that problem here, where... They're saying some pretty deeply racist things, and even then, Davis writing this book is saying they weren't completely in the thrall of white supremacy yet, and they just keep going down the road. Susan B. Anthony's attempt to stay neutral is, like I was saying earlier, you cannot stay neutral. You have to be actively against the racism, otherwise you are enabling it. Because by being neutral, you're just allowing the established power structure to assert itself. Because white supremacy is the status quo, if you are neutral on it, you're in favor of it. Because you need to actively work against it as the status quo, and if you're not going to do that, then you're going to see it proliferate, and it is going to be your fault. It is not going to be an unfortunate circumstance. And it does just feel like an extension of this issue that, at the end of the day, they are not concerned with black women voters, and even in newly colonized lands, they're not concerned at all with colonization. They're only concerned with, those colonized people should have the vote too. Those women, they should be definitely part of our movement. But they don't seek to defend or support the women from this progress of colonization, because fundamentally this movement has decided that it is pro-imperialist, and it is pro-white supremacy. So... They only want the elevation of women without any other social changes, which is depressing. And with that depressing note, I think we're done for this week. If you have questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. The show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com. You can find lots of other leftist podcasts there on different kinds of media, like video games, books, anime, movies. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on sandimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading.